Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is witch and author Emma Catherine. Emma has had an interest in witchcraft from an early age, and her practice has developed to include a combination of British magical traditions with the Afro-Caribbean ones of Mayal and Obeya. She has written books such as Reclaiming Ourselves, Reclaiming Food, Wild Witchcraft, and Witch Life, and champions the positive relationships that can exist between people and nature through an interest in the supernatural. I begin the interview by asking how her interest in witchcraft started and developed over time with the mixing of different magical systems. From there, we talk about the path that she followed to becoming an Obeah woman some of the deities she works with as part of that, and the relationship and differences between Obeya and Mayal. We also discuss our shared interest in animism and how immersing yourself in the natural landscape can bring about a deeper connection with the other. Emma was a delight to talk to, and this was a really fun interview to record. Enjoy! Emma, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. My first question to my guest is often quite an unimaginative one, but it's a good place to start. <laughs> um, how did your interest in witchcraft begin? Um, you know what? Sometimes when you think about things, I don't know, it's kind of hard to remember. Um, I guess it's always been there on the edge. So like when I took things back and I think about, I don't know, my childhood, and I've got three other sisters, so I'm kind of one of the middle ones and I don't know <laughs> I guess I was always slightly different so while my sisters were you know off out and playing with their barbies and stuff like that I often had my nose stuck in a book and I think the books I used to like to read were filled with magic and adventure um you know so I guess if you wanted to be pedantic you could say it started there but I guess seriously um I don't know I think I really kind of began to think about it as a concept closer to what we kind of imagine today. Um, I think in my early teens, I think that's the same for a lot of us, I reckon. Yeah, and so, so what sort of things did that involve? Um, well, you know, like I was born in the 80s, so um, my parents always worked. I grew up on a council estate, very working class upbringing. And so in the holidays and stuff, my parents always worked. So my oldest sister often had the unfortunate task of looking after the rest of us. And back then, you know, and she was about 14. Back then it was, you know, quite normal. Um, and so, I don't know, it's 
we just used to go places so to the woods um swimming in rivers and lakes much to you know the horror of my my mum self today um and i guess that just being immersed in nature um and then there's always the fun side of things so everybody always liked to do like things like ouija boards and stuff like that it was always fun you know i think a lot of teenagers mess around with stuff like that but then you you start to begin to look past that and you think what is there and you know you start because back when when we were that age the internet wasn't really a thing unless your parents were quite well to do and so most of us began with the local library or you know secondhand bookshop so that's kind of where it began to kind of change I guess. Right okay and how did you begin practicing witchcraft was there something that that really helped with that or did you just sort of go for it and see what happened (laughs) (laughs) yeah I guess there is an element of that um so you know I think the first time I actually did something was my mum had actually um got me a book from the library so growing up we were kind of not religious at all um so my dad is Jamaican so he came over from Jamaica when he was um about six or seven I think and my mum's um white English um and and while my paternal grandmother was very religious so you know she was quite a devout Christian um it it didn't really filter down and and my mum was always kind of I don't know I always often describe my mum as a bit of a hippie and so you know it was quite an open childhood really I think which is always a good place to begin and so I always remember my mum getting my first book and I can always remember the title but never the author's name and it's so annoying (laughs) um I think her name was Lauren someone or something or other um but the book was called Where to Park Your Broomstick and it was kind of very much aimed at teenagers and so I think having a book that wasn't fiction you know that gave you clear practical steps um I think that was probably where I first began to kind of dip the toes so to speak and do actual practical stuff you know and very much following what it said in the book word for word you know as you do when you're kind of that age do you remember the first thing you tried from that book? I think it was just kind of um, trying to set up some sort of altar, you know. And and of course, like, I don't know, nowadays it's much easier to get things. And um, so I think that was pretty much the, the first the first beginning steps, you know, making in just making incenses and very practical stuff. Oh, OK. It all began with the altar. <laughs> Right. Do you think it helped um, being that age? I mean, I know now my, with my own interest in it, I, I think I probably overthink everything in terms of what to do and how to do it and trying to do it correctly and safely. But I, I guess when you're younger, you maybe don't worry about those things so much. Yeah, I guess so. I think as well, when you're younger, there's always, well, at least from my own experience, there's a sense of... Um, I don't know. I always, I, I don't know. I guess I got a sense of authority from whoever I was given instruction by, or whatever I was given instruction by. So for me, I think, and a lot of us at first follow um, things step by step, 
Um, I, I often say it's a bit like when you're following a recipe, you know, that you're trying for the first time, you might follow it verbatim at first and try it and see how it is, but then you start to begin to add your own flavour. So I think um, at first, when you're kind of young and you're just starting to get your head around okay, witchcraft is an actual thing, it's not fiction, it's not what people tend to think. And oftentimes I think when when you're young, there's, there's that to get over as well, um, that kind of stepping out of the norm. So I think all of those things come into play. But I think when you first start out, for oh, I did at least, it was very much follow what was down. But then it's natural that you want to begin to explore and, and grow and so, yeah. And so... From that point, what happened next? I mean, was there a period of time before you sort of saw it as a, as a serious pastime or or did that happen quite quickly? Um, no, I don't think it did happen quite quickly. So, you know, when I when those experienced, they were kind of like really quite young, um, 12, 13 um, kind of age. And I think I was quite, I don't know, I always describe myself as being introverted anyway, um, and not maybe in the typical sense of the word. I just kind of, I don't know, being around people takes a lot of energy for me sometimes when it's not, you know, when it's when it's your kind of people, it's great. But when, when it's an effort, it's kind of draining and hard. And so I always prefer to stay in with books than, than go out. Um, and of course, that changes as you get to kind of 14, 15, 16. And so for those kind of years, I guess, although the interest was still there, um, you know, normal teenage exploits take over for a while, I guess. <laughs> Which, again, is just a natural part of growing up anyway. Um, but then there was a sense of coming back to it from around probably seriously from around 18 19 kind of age I think and how did that differ from when you were first starting out did you have more knowledge I guess to sort of take the next steps um well I guess it was kind of different for me because um I had my first child when I was around 18 and so um I was kind of in a different place I guess so there's a lot more kind of soul searching I think and a lot more questions about the bigger picture so I think that all of that informed my practice compared to when I say I don't know 12 13 quite you know naturally immature at that age anyway um, and so there was a period of growing up and I think it's natural that, that there is a change in your outlook based on your experiences in those formative years um and so I guess it was just more serious I, I think it was more what is it okay what is the what is witchcraft to me what is it going to look like how is it going to be um more of a part of my life rather than I don't know rather than just something that you did at a certain day or or so I guess that was the difference I think it was just a, a more of a mature outlook I think and more of an exploration of what I wanted it to be rather than okay this book said this thing and that book said that thing you know hmm. so is there something that represents that in microcosm do you think it's something that that sort of signifies that you are or somebody in a similar position is is at a more serious level in their practice? Yeah, I think so. But I think it's um, very individual. I think 
And I think I think it's something that happens at several points throughout your life um, and your witchcraft practice, you know. I think there's always kind of a... Um, there's always some sort of... We have to kind of look at our experiences and assimilate them into um, our practice and our worldview and our beliefs. And so I kind of feel um, that that, that kind of... Um, outlook represents kind of the the exploring those bigger questions um the macrocosm if you will through the the lens of our own experiences so definitely and i think it's like i say i think people go through that through several points in their life naturally um uh, yeah i think it is quite an important phase to go through hmm. so at, at this point were you doing um a magic that involved working with spirits or or deities, things like that. Um, I guess <laughs> um, it was kind of like it's weird to kind of explain because I feel like um, we go, we often see our journeys as linear, but often I think they're more of a spiral. So when I think back, it's almost like I'm looking at things through a spiral. So I might have. Um, gone through that process of assimilating my experiences and my individual experiences um, and kind of putting that through through the lens of what does this mean for the bigger picture. Um, but I also think that um, there's a kind of process of feeling it out and seeing what works. And for me, it was kind of a time for exploring different ideas and different concepts of trying things. Um, because I think I'd gone through a stage of being quite rigid with myself. And I think um, this is where I kind of swung back and forth between um, different ideas, different traditions and that kind of thing. So I, I think, and again, I think that exploration is a necessary part of anybody's journey because we have to be willing to look at new ideas, try new things, see how they feel for us. And so it did involve spirit work. Um, different aspects of spirit work some that I've kept with some that I've developed further and some that you know um they're there but more in the background um for a while I was set dead against the idea of working with deities and again it's changed through that process of assimilating my experiences um and kind of just exploring what that means for me and what I can take from that and sometimes it's a case of kind of breaking down our own biases so I think I was kind of had a bit of a knee-jerk reaction against um you know the idea of deity representing some type of authority you know um mm. and so for a while I was dead set against that um but then you know you explore different things you kind of widen your circle you put yourself in uncomfortable situations and circumstances um, and you, you learn from all of that stuff. So, yeah, it was definitely a period of exploration and kind of just figuring out what worked for me, what didn't work for me. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. So was magic your introduction to spirits and deities and, the, and these sorts of beings, or, or did your interest in the paranormal that preceded that, did it help set you up for this sort of thing at all? Um. I think so. And, you know, I think 
for I don't know when I think back on my own childhood and growing up you know I don't know whether other people relate to this at all like I say we were often what you'd call latchkey kids now you know um while our parents worked and so quite often you know we were watching horror films because your sister and her friends were putting them on and you were just there and you know they were babysitting (laughs) for us and all of that kind of stuff um doing daft things like Ouija boards and you know, trying things out. And I think those experiences broaden your um, mind, I think. Um, And also growing up with, um, as a mixed race person. um, So my dad came from over from Jamaica when he was a a young child. And so growing up, we often heard um, what you might call Jamaican folk stories, so a lot of Anansi stories, there was a lot of um, the Dupiakum and stuff like that. And so kind of being open to just aware that there's different things in the world and different ideas and different concepts. Um, and then we always, my mum's always been um, quite open to those ideas as well. And one of her stories she often told us is um, when she was <laughs> um, a young girl growing up in a mining village, so I live in the middle of England and in Nottinghamshire. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, pit villages around the town where I live. And my mum grew up in one and she used to babysit for this woman. And it was a poor area and this woman was a single woman and she used to work in a pub. And so my mum was babysitting overnight, two young kids. Anyway, there was no electric, the electric had gone. She hadn't put any money in the meter. And so the only light was from the the fire, you know, in the fireplace and um, candles and that kind of thing. So she had her friends round and for some daft reason, as as children often do, they decided to do a Ouija board. And my mum swears blind to this story, even now when we talk about it. And it always comes up at like gatherings and stuff like that. Um, Anyway, they'd messed around with the Ouija board. Nothing had happened. And then one of her friends had said, I know who we can call to. So her granddad had just recently passed away. So they decided to call to this girl's granddad. And again, nothing had really happened until the girl then said, well, you know what? I never liked the old so-and-so anyway, Um, miserable old. And, you know, there's a few curse words in there and stuff like that. And my mum swears blind that the glass that they were using shot into the fireplace and they heard heavy footsteps coming down the stairs, like someone wearing pit boots. Anyway, they all ran out and they had to go and get um, one of her friend's older brothers to come in and, and all of that stuff. So, yeah, there's always kind of those little bits of stories, you know. So I think all of that does give you an open mind and just I think an open mind is key to witchcraft. Absolutely. And in in your own home, was there was there any weirdness? <laughs> um, I don't think so. I think we would have liked there to have been, and I'm sure more than once we got like, oh no, there's you know <laughs> but no. Unfortunately not, I'm afraid. A bit boring. We all want those experiences. Uh, that's okay. So on your Wild Witchcraft blog you, you write quite a lot about the Afro-Caribbean traditions that influence you, uh, Obeya and Mayal. Um, for, for people like myself who aren't very familiar with those traditions, can, can you talk a little bit about them and, and, and what they are? Yes. 
So um, when I talk about OBR, I always think it's important to make the distinction that I always talk about the tradition that I've learned. And OBR is very much an Afro-Caribbean practice. It had its origins in West Africa and was brought to the Caribbean with the enslaved um, during those times um, when Britain had control over Jamaica. Um, and so I always think the thing with magic and the thing it gets me so mad sometimes when, you know, people are like, oh, my God, this never changes or, you know, we need to preserve the old ways. Because way I, th I always think witchcraft is a living tradition that often changes um, based on the people who practice it and their circumstances. And so with the slave trade and with the enslaved in Jamaica, what you saw was lots of different people brought together from lots of different tribes speaking lots of different languages. Um, and they were put into plantations and they were mixed on purpose, you know, because it, it lessened the chance of revolt if, you know, pe the people who were enslaved together didn't know one another. And, you know, if they had different beliefs and spoke different languages, there was less chance of them, you know, plotting to revolt. Of course, uprisings did happen. And so the origins of beer in West Africa are very different to the Obia that we find in the different islands of the Caribbean. And even within the different islands, there's going to be um, differences and variations because the local landscapes, the people, their experiences. And so Obia nowadays tends to be a kind of catch-all phrase um, to kind of speak of anything magical. Um, but it is, does have its origins in West Africa. Um, Mile is often seen as, I don't know, the why or the light or the good side of magic, whereas Iberia is often seen as darker or evil or something. And often, as in all forms of magic, those simplified generalizations often mean very little. Um, so what we can really see is Obia being almost a bastardized version of the original, the Mayo men, um, Mayo men, you know, and women were seen to be the authority or the, the um, I don't know, the, the legit version, if you will. Whereas Obia was, they didn't follow their rules. The Obia practitioner worked their own magic. They worked it for their own ends and followed less of that tradition. So we can kind of see that distinction there. But nowadays, Obia tends to just be used to refer to um, magical practice a spiritual and magical practice um so i often describe it as as a bit of a folk tradition and particularly like i say jamaican which uh, jamaican obia which is the form i practice often akin to kind of the folk um british witchcraft and there are some similarities you know so working with the land and local spirits um working with the genius loci using um things that you can kind of get your hands on um healing and more baneful work as well it's very much down to the practitioner it's a very much an individual um practice although it is it's closed in that you have to be initiated into it and you have to apprentice under under somebody um but yeah that's very much what Obeer is. I often tend to just call it Jamaican witchcraft just for ease of understanding because it is a magical and spiritual tradition as well. Right, okay. And so how did you begin your relationship with Obeer? 
Um, so I always remember a long, long time ago, my dad coming around to my house and he was looking at my bookcase and he was seeing all of these books on um, British witchcraft and traditional witchcraft and witchcraft, witchcraft, witchcraft. And he was like, where's the Obia books? And, you know, that was kind of a turning point for me because I knew what Obia was. I'd heard of it and, I'd, you know, um, I knew what it was, but there aren't really many obia books um obia is quite a secretive tradition you know and the books that are out there today they don't tend to be how-to guides they're usually somebody's experiences or you know um from a kind of anthropological point of view so there aren't that many practical obia books um so that was part of the question but that kind of sparked something in me um anyway I kind of researched it and read up on it for quite a while and didn't really think anything more of it because, like I say, it's, you have to be initiated into the tradition, into the practice. So I kind of carried on with the, the practices that I was doing. And then I always remember going to a, um, a family friend's house um going to visit them and i think when when you're practicing witchcraft and um i don't know you just can tend to see the same tools about you know so i went to this person's house and i was like hmm that looks very much like an altar hmm they've got a lot of incense hmm they've got this and that and so i kind of said do you uh practice witchcraft by any chance and that's kind of how it came up so they practiced obia and um i kind of booked them to teach me it for a while because and they are quite a private person so it's not common knowledge that they practice it it's only that I'd gone to their house and because of my own witchcraft practice I'd you know recognized some of the tools that were quite similar to what I was using myself um so yeah I kind of pestered and bugged my way <laughs> into into it excellent so when you started this learning process what was that like and was it different to what you've been doing prior to that was it was it a, a step up in terms of the sort of things you were doing or was any of it familiar to you but just with this distinctive caribbean um, background yeah i think it's a bit of both so there were um some things that were quite similar and even when i've run my own abia apprenticeships and uh, mentorship programs i think whatever tradition or path somebody practices, I think there are techniques and methods that we all use. Um, so entering trance, for example, um, controlling uh, will and directing will and entering different kind of meditative states, all of those things, you know, you could say lots of different people from lots of different traditions practice. And a lot of those skills and tools are transferable. Um, I guess where where it differed was really the spirit work aspect of it because Obia is very much about um, using what you have. When I think back to the Obia man or woman, you know, the enslaved Obia people, men and women um, on the plantations, and I think what would they have used? Because quite often they were spiritual leaders, quite often they were at the forefront of rebellions and uprisings. Uh, Queen Nanny of the Maroons is my favourite, Obia woman of all time who I always bang on about, you know. Um, and so <clears throat> quite often, because those people were displaced from their lands forcibly so, um, 
they had to adapt. And so there were there were some things that would have been similar to their home because obviously Jamaica is, is quite a hot and tropical place. And, you know, so certain plants would have grown there that might have grown in other people's homelands. Um, but there is an element of using what is available to you and working with the spirits of the land where you find yourself. So things like that were already kind of um, things that I were quite comfortable with. Um, but the, the spirit work side, working with the specific um, obese spirits, I guess, and having, um, being initiated into it, having that kind of, a, I, I guess it's more of an apprenticeship than an, an initiation, I kind of describe it as, because there's a period of having to do certain things. And a lot of those things are, sometimes they're just, in a way, proving yourself to your teacher, to your mentor, you know, um, showing that you're dedicated, showing that you're going to turn up, showing that you you want it. Um, so yeah, I guess there were some things that were a little bit different, and some things that were quite familiar as well. Oh, okay. And can you talk a little bit about what that work might involve, and I guess the the, the spirits you would work with? Yes. So um, I guess there's a there's a general belief um, in Obia, and I guess this suits my own kind of Gnostic outlook on a supreme creator being. Okay, so the belief is that there is a supreme creator being, but they're so far removed from us as humans that they are essentially unknowable. Um, okay, and I, I like that kind of concept because it kind of ties into my belief about, you know, we talk about Mother Nature being all loving and all caring and, and all of those things. But in a way, Mother Nature is cruel because it's she kills her, her, her babies, for want of a better word, you know. Nature can be harsh. And I think that... Um, there's some supreme creator being that takes an intense interest in our everyday lives to such minuscule detail. I don't know, it's just never really sat right with me or never really made much sense. So the idea that there's some far away thing that is essentially unknowable to us with our small mortal human minds, I don't know, it's always kind of made a bit of sense to me, I guess. Um, so, um, in Obia, we tend to work with different spirits. And sometimes those spirits are kind of intermediaries, much like the lower in Vadun, for example. Um, they often act as intermediaries between the, the supreme greater being or the universe, whatever you want to call that thing. <laughs> um, and one of the main ones um, is Sasa Bonsam, who is often described in quite dark terms. Um, some of that can be traced back to just pure old colonialism you know and the spread of christianity anything that wasn't christianity was the devil you know and um, so there's that aspect of it but also i think sasa bonsam embodies that dark and dangerous more wild side of nature um i often describe him as the wild is almost like the wild dark lord you know and protector of those wild spaces and places and really protects against human greed and um, so he's said to target hunters um who take too much or just you know want to kill everything whether they're hungry or not and so into in our modern day terms that for me that kind of represents human greed um whatever that looks like so sasa bonsam is the main one and quite often 
the the obeah spirits are a little bit more um i think what makes them more frightening or seem more frightening or more darker is that they're a little bit more abrupt they're not kind of the loving parent type that we might want or wish for and i think that's kind of representative of the turmoil and hardship that that people have faced in those parts of the world you know um the the turmoil and all that tragedy of of slavery in those places i think he makes us represent the world as it is you know we have to have a clear and a and a complete view of things the good and the bad and so i think sometimes that those spirits generally that we tend to consider dark i think they all have that aspect so he's kind of like the main one um and then there are others so papa bones for example i often i often describe obia and the spirits as if Sazabonsam is the power of obia and it's said that you get it by it's infused um into your very skeleton right down to your very core and the initiation itself is a is an initiation by spirit so it the power of obia is given by Sasabonsam. so if it, i often say if Sasabonsam is the power of obia itself then papa bones is um almost like the guardian of that so if you had a garden for example Sasabonsam would be the garden itself and papa bones would be the gardener someone who takes care and protects that garden in that space so that's kind of how i weigh up the relationship between them you also have um female aspects such as Assassi, or sometimes she's called the lady of the pitch lake um and again she's very dark and aloof you know they're not embracing um they're not all loving and she's dark and aloof but that doesn't mean that she's not caring in her own way and then there's um anima solar which is more of a title than a name and it represents um it represents kind of the dark feminine rage and and pain and just the i don't know i think she represents the injustice of the world so they're the spirits and working with them you you know you get different things from each of them or each of them kind of put you through different trials where you have to kind of I don't know, I guess come to terms and face your real self, which I guess is the hardest thing of all for humans to do. <laughs> so, yeah, in essence, that's basically it. Well, it sounds fascinating. So so when you're working with those entities, I, mean, I guess before you start working with them, do you do you protect yourself? Is that I know in some traditions you, you might cast a circle or or do something to just make sure that you're fully prepared before you do a, a ritual um is, is that something that's involved here um i mean there is an element of protection but not normally with these spirits and i think this is where the training and the initiation and the apprenticeship comes in because um it's about building a relationship with those spirits it's not so much one of um reverence and worship though there is an element of that it's very much reciprocal and i think I think, I don't know, possibly this can be something that's um, similar in a lot of the African traditions or, you know, the the tr- traditions that kind of began in Africa and, and spread to other places in the world. And I don't know, I think, particularly in the Caribbean, I think 
and they're such practical people. When I think of like my dad and my aunties and my uncles, for example, you know, and my auntie will often say that when you're ill, (laughs) that if she's like talking, if she's talking to someone back home and she's just, I don't know, ill with some general illness they'll have to say oh they know say the first thing that they'll say is they know someone who died from that and you know we laugh about it but I think it represents a matter of factness and I think a lot of places where um there's poverty and where life and survival isn't necessarily a given and in the past it hasn't always been life is still quite tough in poorer parts of Jamaica even now and so I think that kind of Um, And I guess even for people in our country, like, I think people who struggle to survive or are always kind of fighting to be on that even keel, I think there's, I don't know, it's almost like that fact of survival isn't a given or survival isn't easy makes us more, um, I don't know, it gives you a bit of a harder shell. And so sometimes things that can be a little bit sensitive to others, they don't, I don't know, I guess we're just desensitised to it, I guess. And so I think um, your initiation and your apprenticeship is very much about building relationships with those um, spirits. And I think if you go into that with an element of, I mean, there's always going to be an element of fear, but I think it's how you control it. And if you go in and you're unable to control that fear, I think you're going to get very little from from your your apprenticeship or your initiation. And so um, the, the practice of kind of protection isn't so much with those spirits, but there are elements of protection because Obeer is very much a spirit work practice. And so there are spirits that are negative, that might be baneful and harmful and have ill intent. And there are some that are good and there are some that maybe just don't give a crap. <laughs> <laughs> so... When you were doing this, you were engaged in this practice. Did they manifest? Did you did you see them for for want of a, a, a better words? <laughs> um, I guess it depends how you're working with them. So um, there's a lot of if you're doing a lot of trance work and a lot of um, that kind of work, then you might see them in in that way. Um, Sometimes it's more invoking them. Sometimes it can just be, it, I guess it depends what exactly you're doing and is how they might manifest. You might, if you're doing a particular working and you want to um, incorporate some essence or you want, you know, a spirit to be associated with that working because, I don't know, it might just tie into what's, what they do. Um, you might do different things for that. So there might be an element of um, of conjuration, for want of a better word. There might be an element of, um, I don't know, it, it's, it's kind of hard to explain because everything that you do within Obia ties into several different um, things. So each of those spirits that I talked about are, they kind of are... I don't know, I guess I'd describe them as being the head of a certain class of spirits. So you might work with spirits that are under them. So you might not necessarily need to invoke them fully all the time. You might just, you know, they might be kind of an opener, so to speak, to get access to something else. Um, So it kind of depends. It's quite varied, um, which I guess is what I like about it. Um, So, yeah, it just depends. (laughs) 
Oh, of course, I, I I appreciate that. So, um, your your blog is called Wild Witchcraft, and you've written a book called Wild Witchcraft. Um, yes. For you, what does um, Wild Witchcraft encompass? What what is it? I guess is a, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, it's it encompasses all the different fears. It intersects in everything i kind of guess uh, and what i mean by that is um so when i think about my practice because as well as the aba i also practice british witchcraft because i feel like incorporating both of those practices into my one witchcraft um magical overall practice is something that has been about incorporating all of who I am and so for me wild witchcraft is very much about striking out and finding what works for you sometimes the well-worn path isn't going to fit sometimes you might follow that for a little while and then you might branch off um, and beat your own track so that kind of concept, I think it intersects in all of the different aspects of my life. So like I say, growing up working class and really poor, I think there's always been an aspect of being othered um, in different areas. And so kind of forging out and just kind of accepting that and embracing that and not kind of trying to force myself into small boxes to suit you know somebody else's ideal I think that's part of it and that's something that spans every aspect of our mundane lives you know um I think wild witchcraft specifically is it's it is about that exploration it is about exploring what witchcraft means for you and being able to decide that um but on a practical level it's also about for me I'm an animist and wild witchcraft is very much about connecting to the land and the genius loci the spirits of place Um, and I think that's something that really impacts both my all of my practices all of my magical practices because although you know I can look at Obia and I can look at witchcraft and I can see them as separate practices when I think about what it means for me and my overall practice actually sometimes it's hard for me to kind of draw that very distinct line of okay this is where witchcraft ends and where witch and obia begins so wild witchcraft has been about me kind of being able to take all of those different parts of myself that are often at odds and just kind of accept them and allow them to exist without feeling pressured and I say feeling pressured the pressure comes from myself nobody else um feeling pressured about what I have to do or what I don't have to do um so I think wild witchcraft as a concept is just basically about being free about deciding what works for you um and about connecting to the land where you live wherever that is because even nowadays such a statement can be quite divisive so um, but we can only work with the land where we are, you know, however we got there. Um, some things are just out of our control, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I consider myself an animist as well. And I, it's only something that I've really sort of engaged with relatively recently. And and since I have, I, I, I definitely feel as though my I have more of a connection with nature. I mean, for, I mean, for yourself, you know, you talked there a little bit about working with spirits of place like genius loci. Has that intuition developed more as, as you've progressed in 
doing your witchcraft practice yes it definitely has um and i think you know, I think we're all a bit guilty of when we start out on our witchcraft practice, we think we look at spells and we think, okay, I need to get this plan or I need this thing. Um, where can I get it from? Da, 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 da. And we pay very little attention to the thing, the, the plant itself. We, you know, we, we might read upon its correspondences and its associations and all of those things, but we I don't know, at least for myself, when and I'm talking about when I was quite young in the beginning and it's more about, you know, following what's written there rather than kind of being having that confidence to explore um, a little bit more deeply. So for me, when I kind of really started to delve into spirit work and animism, I don't know, it just made complete sense. I guess living where I live, it's quite a rural town. So we've always been, I guess, a nature girl. We've always had dogs we've always had animals we've always been able to like I say growing up we'd go to the woods we'd go swimming lakes and rivers and you know all of that stuff and as much as nowadays you might cringe at the idea you know back then it was it was kind of great and I guess I think as you get older I always say all of us when we're kids we're all animists when we're children because we don't question things we just rely more on our experiences and we, we're less self-conscious of our experiences. And I think as we get older, um, we get a bit embarrassed about what other people might think. We tend to try and kind of explain everything away with a logical scientific mind. Not that I've got any, I love science. It's always worth saying. Um, but do you know what I mean? We lose a sense of that magic of the world. And I think witchcraft for me, particularly Obia, because, you know, when you are working with plant for example in obia it's not just about the particular plan and what it might be used for it's you know how it's about your relationship with that plant spirit so you know it's about how you are working with it so if it's a plant that you're growing from seed for example it's about the songs and the chants that you might use while that plant is growing and at the different stages of its growth it's about um the the chants and the songs you might sing while you're harvesting it because while you're harvesting it you might be doing that with a specific purpose in mind um so i feel like the words and the reverence um that i was i don't know that what i was so kind of against giving to a deity i found um came easily when i was in nature so animism was always kind of made sense to me but I think it deepened my witchcraft practice and it's added a real depth and I think it's connected those different parts of my witchcraft practice you know because I look at witchcraft and I can see the animism there and I look at Obia and I see the animism there and actually that it's not different types of animism it's it's just animism it's that you know the world is alive with spirit and so I think it's really deepened both of those and I think having that common thread and identifying that common thread has been I think it's been like pivotal in me kind of just becoming more comfortable, I think, in what I'm doing, you know? Oh, absolutely. You make a really great point there about when people are younger, when they're children, there's there's no pressure on them to sort of see the world a certain way. They're free to engage fully with it with their in a, in an imaginative way, you with their imagination. And I don't know, you're you sort of, you know, when you get older you're sort of made to sort of grow up a little bit um quote unquote grow up and and and, and see the world in a slightly more cold and serious materialistic way I think and from my own experience um you know 
looking at the world, looking at nature through an animistic perspective is has really helped really helped me appreciate you know the the wonder of of life and 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 especially the at the moment with with everything that's going on in the world the 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 threat that's posed to it and the value that it has and and the meaning that it has and i it would have been a lot harder for me to get to that point without having you know animism there as as my as a way for me to re-enchant the world around me and and see it that way yeah i think you know it has very um practical benefits and applications i think when we speak about animism we tend to do so in almost an airy fairy kind of way as though it's not um not a tangible thing but i think yeah it's definitely helped me i think sometimes in very mundane situations like if you're in a tense work situation or you might be annoyed at a colleague or you just might be annoyed at someone in general just being able just wherever you are to connect with spirit and just kind of take a bit of a breather from that mundane world and I think that just gives you a bit of space to recognize what's real what's important and to put things into perspective so I think you know it help it really does help have like a stress-free life not that everything's all great all of the time but I think being able to tap into it when you need it um as a way to kind of just alleviate the stress of everyday life and just being able to put things into perspective I think it's yeah for me it's one of the biggest um I don't know I say one of the biggest there's so many things about animism I love but it's one of the practical things that I think that people forget about it you know oh yeah I I agree and it's it's interesting it's not always a um I don't want to say it's not always a positive experience I feel like I always get something out of it but I've definitely been to woods where I got the sense that the the wood did not really enjoy me being there (laughs) almost like it's in a bad mood (laughs) Um, whereas in other places it's very light and airy and it's not not oppressive but I've been in some woodlands in some forests where that is not the case and it's an it's quite a disquieting feeling but it's I appreciated having that connection at least I guess to something yeah and I think you know what and I, I totally agree with you and I've had experiences like that before and I think you know, it's part of our human ego to think that the world belongs to us. There's still places in the world that doesn't want us there. And sometimes those places aren't as far off as you might think. There's um, one of my local woodlands, I can remember years ago, and I used to take the dogs out. I still go to those woods all the time. I used to take the dogs out all the time in the woods when um, I had to, I've only got one now. I had to get my staffy put down a few years back, but you know, she was the kind of dog that I could let off the lead. My little dog, not so much because he runs away, but she always used to be let off the lead when we were in the woods because she had good recall and wouldn't disappear and wouldn't chase squirrels and get lost and stuff like that. Um, So I always remember one day, and we'd started off in a familiar part of the woods. It's quite a large woods. It's a mixed one, so it's part plantation, part mixed um, beech and um, oak and birch. And so we'd, we'd started off in a quite familiar place. And as we'd just gone through the woods, off the trail, under the trees, and um, I hadn't paid much attention. I was just kind of lost in my own thoughts, lost in enjoying um, just the woodland walk. And I guess 
even as an animist, I think having that connection with nature is good because it works both ways, doesn't it? We get what we need from the land a lot of the time, but sometimes it's about listening and respecting what those spirits of place are saying to us. And this is where, for me, animism ends up becoming something that's reciprocal. You know, it's not just about what we get from it, it's about also how we impact that space. Um, it's a reciprocal relationship. And so, anyway, I'd carried on. And I felt a kind of, you're right, it's a disquieting feeling. And sometimes you don't always notice it straight away. And because I was on my own with the dogs, I'd kind of, um, I don't know, I kind of think, I thought, well, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm spooking myself a little bit. So I'd pressed on anyway. Um, and I just happened to look back and I saw the big dog, my big dog, just standing away back off. She, and no amount of cajoling would make her come. And she kept turning back, walking a step away, and then turning back to look at me as if to say, come on, what are you hanging about? Come on. And so, you know what? I, I'm not afraid to say it. I turned around and we went back to where we felt welcome because it is a relationship about respect. And sometimes we have to face facts that we're not always wanted. So, yes, absolutely. But I think having that connection with um, the land so that you can feel that and understand that in in a way that is kind of, um, I don't know, not hurtful, I guess. Yeah, I think that goes hand in hand with building that relationship. It's about being respectful and understanding that sometimes the land needs stuff from us, even if that is for us just to stay away, you know. Yeah, of course. So we're almost out of time, but uh, we've been talking about uh, forest spirits uh, earlier on in the conversation, and uh, it's, it's hard for me to get through an episode without mentioning Bigfoot at some point, <laughs> uh, or, or you know, the similar similar sorts of cryptids. From your perspective and with your background as somebody that works with spirits and uh, entities that are sort of deeply connected with the forest and wild places what is your take on on bigfoot and and those sorts of beings that people see out and about in in woodlands and forests and and such i just think the world is such a mysterious place i think there's still so much we don't know um and i i think again i think as a species we're a bit egotistical and we don't like that we don't know everything about everything um i just think never say never you know the world is such a mysterious place there's we're always discovering new things you know there's there's new species being discovered all the time so i just think why would we want to limit ourselves in any way (laughs) i quite agree Well, Emma, this has been a really wonderful chat. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. Thank you. If people want to find out more about you and your blog and your books, how do they do that? Um, They can find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. It's just Emma Catherine Wild Witch um, on all of them. Um, Emma Catherine Wild Witchcraft.com is the website and you can find me all my links on there. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emma. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Emma. If you enjoyed it, her Wild Witchcraft blog has a lot more of her thoughts on the sorts of subjects we discussed and further details about her books and how to get hold of them. 
Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter and Mastodon and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for episode 100 of Some Other Sphere.